The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Good evening, everyone. This is Dr. Alan Fine, the podcast editor of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. And uh, today we are privileged to speak to Dr. Christopher Erb, who's a uh, clinical assistant professor of medicine in pulmonary critical care and sleep at the Yale University School of Medicine. And uh, he is uh, an intensivist who has a, a strong interest in uh, ventilator and hospital-acquired pneumonia. And also with Dr. Mark Matursky, who has been very uh, long involved uh, in the area of respiratory infection and both of them are authors of the recently published uh, Management of Adults with Hospital and Ventilator-Associated Pneumonia, the new and revised clinical practice guideline. Uh, this was originally published in the July issue of Clinical Infectious Disease, and a summary for clinicians will uh, be published uh, very soon in the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. So let me welcome both of you, and uh, this uh, is a very exciting and I must say confusing topic uh, to <laughs> most people working uh, with critically ill patients. So uh, let me start firing away. Let me ask, why uh, did we need a new uh, hospital-acquired ventilator-associated pneumonia guideline? What new do we need to know, and what do clinicians uh, need to know? Uh, this is Mark. First, let me thank you, Alan, for uh, inviting us to to, uh, to do this podcast. It's a it's a pleasure to speak with you about about this area. Uh, why did we need a new guideline? Uh, there there were several reasons. Uh, first of all, information changes just just over time. Microbiology changes. Perspective changes. Areas of concern change, such that uh, antibiotic stewardship and C. difficile have been much bigger issues. Uh, so there's always a temporal drift in in uh, in our target and and the data. With respect to to this guideline specifically, one of the major issues of concern relating to the prior version is that, uh, despite the fact that it was based upon the best data that were existent at that time and it was state of the art at that time. There's been concern raised over the years that uh, it may be leading to uh, antibiotic overuse. Um, the guidelines from 2005 specified double gram-negative coverage and MRSA coverage for a large portion of patients with hospital-acquired and ventilator-associated pneumonia. And as data emerged, it, it became pretty clear that, that many of those patients did not need such broad coverage in, in many hospitals. The similar issue applied to the new, as of then, HCAP, healthcare-associated pneumonia um, designation that uh, many patients with HCAP probably did not need broad-spectrum coverage for uh, multidrug-resistant organisms. Now, ironically, as, as we'll probably hear later in the podcast, we opted not to include HCAP uh, in these guidelines but we certainly did address the issue of, uh, of appropriate use and, and uh, attempting 
to limit uh, overuse of uh, broad-spectrum antibiotics? Well, that's uh, a uh, very uh, good reason, very good set of reasons for uh, a new guideline. But, uh, you know, as I was talking to a number of my colleagues this week, uh, uh, the idea of um, ventilator-associated pneumonia and hospital-acquired pneumonia is a very confusing one. So I wanted to uh, start with Chris and ask him, what, what, what is your understanding of what, start with ventilator-associated pneumonia and, and also, also hospital-acquired pneumonia. I'm, I'm always looking at uh, the majority of the patients uh, in the ICU. They, they uh, on a ventilator. They have infiltrates. They have fevers. Uh, how do we differentiate or think about these uh, issues? Yeah, thanks, Alan, for having us. Um, I, I think the concept of hospital-acquired or ventilator-associated pneumonia is a complicated clinical question um, that's not always apparent, particularly in the ICU where patients are at risk for other types of infections. A leukocytosis alone, for example, may not indicate a new pneumonia, but it may be another source of infection. And so these guidelines focus specifically on pneumonia, but it's important to define what that is, um, and it often relies on other clinical um, criteria. And so the definition used in this guideline um, was actually identical to the guideline, the definition used in the guideline in 2005. And that was to define pneumonia as a new lung infiltrate plus clinical evidence that the infiltrate is of an infectious origin. That evidence might be new fever, purulent sputum, leukocytosis, or a decline in oxygenation. And in the case of ventilator-associated pneumonia, that pneumonia would be identified or, having, or um, uh, would have developed greater than 48 hours after endotracheal intubation in an ICU. For hospital-acquired pneumonia, it's defined as patients not on a ventilator and evidence of the pneumonia developing 48 hours or more after admission to the hospital without evidence of, of pneumonia at the time of admission. One of the major differences with um, this new guideline is that, as uh, Dr. Matursky was saying, it doesn't include hospital, the concept of uh, healthcare-associated pneumonia this time. And the reason for that was there were several reasons to think that the population of patients at risk for healthcare-associated pneumonia are probably not the same as patients who are already in the hospital. There may be some risk factors for multidrug-resistant pathogens, but many patients, through their association with the hospital, maybe in a recent admission or through a nursing home or even as an outpatient with exposure to a dialysis facility, um, may not actually be high risk for multidrug-resistant pathogens. And it may actually be underlying patient characteristics and comorbidities that are more important risk factors, similar um, uh, to with other patients with community-acquired pneumonia. So this guideline did not include HCAP, but there is, it is anticipated that patients that were, are considered to have HCAP will be included with upcoming guidelines for community-acquired pneumonia and would be lumped in with that group. Can, if I could add, I, I agree completely, uh, Chris, with uh, the concepts you've raised. Um, one of the other things, factors that was, that was uh, driving us to, to move HCAP to, to the CAP guidelines is that the issue of workflow and target audience, patients with HCAP are coming in through the ED. Um, they're being then admitted to the hospital. 
They're being cared for by initially ED physicians who make in, the initial antibiotic decisions. And we felt that it just made sense from a logistic standpoint to, to put those patients in with the CAP patients. So the similar group of physicians uh, would, would, would read those guidelines and, and incorporate it into a, a similar workflow. Um, I think in that question, there's an elephant in the room that we should probably mention, and that's the issue of the new CDC surveillance definitions for VAP. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when we're talking about our concepts of HAP and VAP, um, it, it probably is reasonable to mention those. And um, not to go into any great detail, but, but um, you know, the, 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 the uh, ventilator-associated conditions, the IVACs, et cetera, which we don't really uh, say much about in our guidelines. And, and the reason is simple, is that these definitions, whether you like them or not, were devised for surveillance. They, they were not at all devised for bedside by, decision By surveillance, making. you mean following the epidemiologic trends in a particular yeah. unit? Population-based exactly. monitoring, yes. Exactly. Um, and, and, and population at the individual unit level, but also um, through national databases, through the CDC or um, you know, potentially Medicare databases as well. Exactly. And um, Mike Klompis, who, who uh, played a large role in, in helping to develop those definitions, was on our panel and was in 100% agreement. So there really wasn't any controversy at all about our decision not to consider those in the guidelines. They're, they're just not meant for bedside decision-making. So uh, the definitions that you, you just uh, raised, I, I think, are good practical uh, definitions and ways of uh, thinking about uh, ventilator-associated pneumonia. But uh, do either of you or both of you think that most patients on ventilators are uh, infected at some, some level just by being on a ventilator? And do you, do you think it's a kind of arbitrary when we decide to treat? It's not something it, that's easy to grab hold of. I just, I just wanted to do... Well, well it can be a challenge. It certainly can be a challenge. And I'll just say something briefly, and then I'll let Mark weigh in on this, because he actually uh, was the author of a recent publication in uh, JAMA, uh, JAMA Internal Medicine, right, Mark? Looking at the yeah, epidemiology yeah. of of, of um, ventilator-associated pneumonia rates over the last decade or so. Um, and so it is a challenge to, to identify it, and that's why the, the definitional criteria attempt to um, specify the types of clinical criteria that would indicate that a ventilator-associated pneumonia has developed. The overall rates, though, seem to be uh, on the range of about 10% of patients who are receiving mechanical ventilation will develop a, a ventilator-associated pneumonia. Is that figure right, Mark? Yeah, that's that's what we're seeing over uh, over the past ten years or so. Correct. You know, I, Alan, I think you raised a, a very important question, and that is, how do we know if a patient has VAP, and you know, is a patient infected? Um, I, I think some of it's semantics. You know, what is colonization? They're they're all everyone's colonized with with something. You know, within a few days of being uh, intubated, but when does it turn into pneumonia? And it's pretty clear that there's a continuum between colonization, ventilator-associated tracheobronchitis, and VAP. And we're not very good at determining, you know, 
rigid, firm boundaries between one or the other. It's a continuum, and we, we do our best at the bedside with the tools we have, but I think it's pretty clear from the literature, which uh, in some studies have compared uh, autopsy results looking at pneumonia versus clinical um, criteria, and, and as well invasive sampling and bronch- you know, with BAL, that we're not very good at it. But, um, you know, I think we all use the same tools. You know, is there, are there signs and symptoms of infection? Uh, is there a new infiltrate? Um, and, and we know, we know it, that those are inexact. Yeah, I was going to say, isn't it possible that in a particular patient, a tracheobronchitis or, uh, might be more clinically significant than a pneumonia? For example, so or is it uh, or is practic what we're saying practically that pneumonia is the more anything that is clinically significant is by definition a pneumonia. Yeah, so I think the clinical significance is part of it. You know, for purposes of creating a guideline and creating a definition, the the radiographic finding is included in the definition. So the to talk about that continuum that you mentioned from tracheobronchitis to pneumonia, a lot of the clinical symptoms would be similar. There might be a new fever, there might be a new leukocytosis, um, and there may even be um, some increased secretions. Um, but the, the definition that's used in this guideline for tracheobronchitis is those clinical features without radiographic evidence of an actual infiltrate. Now, of course, as Mark mentions, there is a, there's a continuum to that, and it's a spectrum. It could be that today there's no radiographic infiltrate, but 48 hours from now there is, and that patient who we thought might have tracheobronchitis today turns out to have pneumonia. Uh, and if they're on a ventilator and it's been after 48 hours, that would be considered a a ventilator-associated pneumonia, and the guidelines would be different for that. The guideline actually currently does not recommend antibiotics for the tracheobronchitis patient, but would certainly recommend uh, initiation of antibiotics for the the ventilator-associated pneumonia patient. But with a caveat, and that is recognizing that our chest X-ray, even in better circumstances than ICU portable X-rays, is an inexact imaging modality that we know from CAP a significant number of patients with pneumonia will have a negative chest X-ray and a positive CT. So knowing that, we know that our diagnosis of VAT versus VAP is inexact. Um, and, and we state in the guidelines, even though we're not recommending routine treatment of VAT, if, if a patient has increased sputum, it's purulent, they have a fever and a white count, we, we would all treat that. We on the panel believe that most of those patients who didn't have an infiltrate still had VAP pneumonia, and we're just not seeing it on our imperfect chest X-rays. But um, with a patient who has so many signs of significant infection, uh, we would treat that with or without an obvious uh, infiltrate. So this is a good segue into uh, my next uh, question, is do uh, biomarkers and with all the attention on procalcitonin, I wanted some comment on that. And cultures, uh, if we get them, should we always get them? Uh, and how should we use cultures in the setting of ventilator-associated pneumonia? And uh, it would be more difficult, but also in hospital-acquired pneumonia. Cultures, that's the easy answer. Yes, <laughs> whenever possible. So, so none of us, I think, and I don't think we had to write this in the guideline, none of us would ever try and treat VAP 
without trying to get a baseline, without getting a baseline culture. And we can always get it because they're intubated. Um, uh, you know, there, there's such a high risk of multi-drug resistant organisms that it would be foolhardy to consider pure empiric therapy. Um, and there was no controversy. And we didn't do a literature, system, systematic literature search on that because no one would ever do such a study. And it's clearly something that everyone believes. Um, we, we did not come down on the side of invasive sampling with quantitative cultures um, because we just didn't think that the burden, cost, potential risk of delaying therapy was worth the potential benefit um, that could be seen, which is decreasing antibiotic use, but without any other clear-cut patient-centric improvement in outcomes. Um, for HAP, as you point out, it's much tougher to get cultures but we certainly recommend non-invasive attempts to get a culture prior to starting antibiotics to help guide therapy and to help allow narrowing of therapy also. You know, you, you can't de-escalate with assurance if you don't have a, a baseline culture. In terms of the biomarkers, when we looked at biomarkers for the diagnosis of pneumonia, for deciding whether or not to start antibiotics, none of them had adequate performance characteristics. So if you look at CRP, S-TREM, PCT, none of them were sensitive or specific enough to be safely used to, to decide when to start antibiotics. And um, we, we did come down in favor of PCT for helping to guide duration of therapy, and I think that discussion is best left for when we talk about that. Chris, uh, anything you want to add? Well, and one thing that occurs to me, it might, this might be a good time to talk about one additional feature of the, the guideline update that we didn't mention before, and that is that we're now using the grading system, discussing the level of evidence for the various recommendations. That system was not included in the 2005 guideline, and it may be useful for clinicians to, to understand um, how that's used, and, and actually when when there is a guideline about something that seems to be on a spectrum, how low on the spectrum or high on the spectrum that might be. And what I mean by that is um, the, the writing committee evaluated about over 300 uh, articles and uh, studies in their systematic review for the guideline update. Some of those studies are robust um, randomized clinical trials. Some were observational studies. Some were um, meta-analyses of other studies. Some were case reports. And so it's important for uh, clinicians to understand that there's going to be a range of evidence to support the guidelines. And in some cases, the guidelines were based on consensus among the experts when there wasn't, uh, as Mark was mentioning, there's no studies to, to look at comparing the use of a culture to guide antibiotics versus no culture because we everybody would try to get cultures if possible. And so in, in some of those situations, it's, it's um, consensus among experts and practicing clinicians. So that grading system was uh, introduced in this time, and it, it's, it's relevant for some of the biomarker discussion as well because some of these biomarkers are, are newly being applied to the concepts of, of hospital-acquired pneumonia and vitilator-associated pneumonia. It may be that there are some some small signals for them being helpful, but not yet robust information enough to use them exclusively to guide recommendations. And so the guideline comes down in favor of using the clinical criteria primarily as described 
at this point in time. And, and so it's important to know that there may be a study that would come out next week or next year that would, would show a particular cutoff for a, a biomarker like procalcitonin that would be helpful, um, and, and that might change over time. So uh, now uh, to the, uh, I guess we'll call it the red meat or the uh, essence of this guideline. I, how, does that, how, how do your recommendations affect our treatment approach? Have we made any changes in how we should treat and, and secondarily how long we should treat? Yeah, I'll start on that one. I think Mark might have some thoughts about it as well. And one of the important guiding principles of this guideline update was to be more aware of, of antibiotic stewardship and the idea that through our antibiotic prescribing practices, we sometimes are inducing um, antibiotic resistance and in some cases, multi-drug resistant organisms. That's one thing. There's also the side effects that patients experience when exposed to antibiotics, either in clinically appropriate antibiotics or antibiotics that are more broad spectrum than is necessary, things like C. diff, as Mark mentioned, also just antibiotic-associated diarrhea and other conditions. Um, and, and finally, there's the cost of uh, excess use of antibiotics when not clinically integrated. And so one of the goals of this update and the guidelines is to help guide clinicians um, to, to make um, appropriate clinical choices for antibiotics, both empirically, before cultures are obtained or the results of those cultures are known, and also to help decide on duration of therapy and also de-escalation of care uh, or de-escalation of antibiotics over time when culture results are available. And so, I guess, Mark, do you have anything else to add to that before we go on to more details? Just some general concepts, and then and then perhaps you can get into some of the specifics in terms mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, changes in sort of the uh, specific antibiotics or, mm-hmm. or how many antibiotics. And while we wrote specific antibiotic recommendations, we wanted to say that people should use all the data that they have available because you cannot write a guideline that fits every ICU. Uh, there, there's too much heterogeneity. So we, we wrote antibiotic recommendations that we thought were generally appropriate, but we understand that there are different circumstances. So what are some of the things that people should be using? The most important one is the antibiogram for their institution or if their ICU is big enough, has enough patients, even an ICU-specific antibiogram. And so some of the recommendations were based upon the prevalence of multidrug-resistant organisms in a given ICU. In an ICU that never sees MRSA, the recommendations are going to be different than an ICU that 50% of their staff is MRSA. And there are ICUs like that, that uh, and countries like that, where MRSA is in the single digits per year. We also feel that there are some patient-specific factors that, while they didn't rise to the level that we could make a specific recommendation that would definitively uh, result in an antibiotic choice, that they could be used in concert with other data to make it antibiotic decision that didn't necessarily correspond to the, you know, the one from column A, one from column B table that we created. And one example is a patient who would otherwise maybe need double gram-negative coverage whose gram stain shows sheets of gram-positive cocci in clusters and has a positive MRSA nasal swab. In such a patient, maybe 
you don't need double gram-negative coverage because even though the gram stain alone and the MRSA swab alone by, by themselves aren't enough to know what you're dealing with, if you put everything together, this patient probably has MRSA and you're not going to need double gram-negative coverage. So, so that's a, the general concept is we, we wanted clinicians to use all the potential data at, at their disposal. One of the other things that the guidelines can be used for is in, in deciding on duration of therapy um, and also on de-escalation of therapy. So, for example, in the systematic review of the evidence, um, the writing group did not find any evidence that a longer course of antibiotics, for example, 10 to 15 days, results in any meaningful benefit to patients compared to shorter courses of antibiotics of 7 or 8 days. With the shorter courses, there were more antibiotic-free days, which goes to the question of antibiotic stewardship and reduction of, of side effects. Um, but there was no difference in the duration of mechanical ventilation, for example, the length of ICU stay, or mortality. And so the, the guideline or the recommendation for short courses of antibiotics is based on those studies. There was another study that showed that in short courses um, in patients with VAP, uh, they were less likely to have multi-drug resistant organisms when using short courses rather than long courses. So there's a, a multitude of evidence now coming out that a shorter course of antibiotics is probably reasonable um, as opposed to longer. The other thing was with de-escalation. There's recommendations for starting with broad-spectrum antibiotic coverage empirically before culture data is, is known, and that usually, based on antibiogram, it might include MRSA coverage as well as pseudomonas coverage and coverage for other gram-negatives. But once cultures are available, uh, there's a new recommendation for de-escalation of care to the specific organisms present, um, and in some cases, um, you know, eliminating antibiotics altogether, and that's an important development as well. Now, you mentioned the use of uh, procalcitonin as a uh, guide to duration of therapy. I just wondered if you could fill in the blank on that one. Sure. We did not find procalcitonin was useful for deciding whether to start therapy, but there, there are several studies that suggest that the procalcitonin kinetics, so looking at how quickly procalcitonin levels come down, if they do, um, can be used to, to safely shorten the course of antibiotics. And we, we felt that, that the evidence was strong enough to, to recommend that with an important caveat. In none of those studies is there evidence that, that procalcitonin kinetics could be used to shorten the course below seven days. Uh, if you look at the, you know, the control versus the procalcitonin, you see courses of antibiotics, you know, 12 days in the control, nine days in the procalcitonin, 15 versus 10, things like that. So if you believe us and follow the seven-day recommendation, there's no evidence that procalcitonin would be useful. Um, we, we are not naive enough to believe that everyone is going to do what we recommend. And if, if uh, you're in an ICU or a physician who believes that patients today with gram-negative pneumonia need longer than seven days, then you might be able to use procalcitonin to shorten the course of antibiotics in some patients. Now, I, I was just curious, in, your, in each of your ICUs, is there a standard regimen that uh, you use when uh, you decide a patient does in fact have ventilator-associated pneumonia, or is it uh, really individualized in each patient based on comorbidities, risk factors, immunosuppression? 
cetera. Yeah, in, in our ICU, um, I don't know what the current antibiogram is for MRSA, but we do have a significant um, uh, percentage of, of, of cultures that do uh, have MRSA. And so, so our empiric uh, use uh, uh, you know, treatment for ventilator-associated pneumonia would be uh, an, an agent uh, such as vancomycin uh, with activity against MRSA and uh, an agent with activity against pseudomonas. Um, we tend to use either um, piptazo uh, or ceftazidime as an empiric option. And we are not routinely using double pseudomonal coverage, uh, at least empirically, outside of uh, you know, an individual patient who may be known to have had um, a multidrug-resistant pseudomonas in the past. Yeah, I would say that um, there's not a single standard in my ICU. It's probably somewhat individualized with the caveats that... Um, yeah, we're all going to cover MRSA almost always because in our ICU, a significant percentage are MRSA. In our, our gram-negative antibiogram, Piptazo um, actually does better than meropenem. So most of us will use that as, uh, and it's over 90, it's well over 90%. So uh, as the guidelines suggest, um, if the agent you're considering using for gram-negative, if there's over 90% sensitivity, then, then you could consider using single gram negative. Um, so a lot of us will use uh, Piptazo with or without a second agent, depending upon the individual risk factors and, and also potentially the gram stain. Well, uh, I think uh, we, we certainly have a lot to think about. And I think this was, uh, in my mind, very um, uh, useful in terms of uh, how to deal with these very common and uh, critical problems. So let me ask you uh, finally, uh, is there anything you'd like the uh, listeners to come away with, any main message? Yeah, I would say that with, uh, as with any uh, clinical practice guideline, this is a work in progress. This represents currently the best evidence that we have um, and the strongest recommendations we can make to help, help guide clinicians who are working in the field um, make decisions about critically ill patients that they find uh, in front of them. I think more evidence is needed in a lot of these domains, um, but we have a, a strong set of, of recommendations here that can help clinicians guide uh, their therapy choices. Um, but, but decisions will still need to be made on an individual basis based on individual clinic, uh, patient characteristics, comorbidities, and other risk factors, uh, and also patient and provider preferences. I couldn't have said it better myself. I don't have anything to add to that. Well, that, that's definitely a compliment uh, from, a, from a, a real one expert to another. <laughs> so uh, I want to thank uh, both of you, Dr. Christopher Erb and Dr. Mark Matursky, for sharing uh, their thoughts and knowledge uh, with us. And uh, once again, uh, this is Dr. Alan Fine thanking you all for listening and hope you found this podcast as useful as I did. Have a great night and uh, a great uh, holiday season.